If you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, this morning we'll do our introduction, the first 17 verses. Luke is a unique author, and the reason that I I draw your attention to that is, unlike the rest of the disciples, he's actually a very educated man, he's a physician. He is someone who cares about the details. And so as we read Luke's gospel, which is the longest by word count of all of the gospels, there is more information in Luke than any other gospel. As we realize who he's writing to and why he's writing it, we get this beautiful picture of, of a Gentile man who does not have a history in Judaism. He's a Gentile and why the Lord came in the first place. Luke, like no other gospel, presents to us the Savior, the Savior's saga. And we find in chapter 19, really kind of the crux of the entirety of Luke's writing, because he's not only the author of this gospel, but he's also the author of Luke 2, as I like to refer to it, or the book of Acts. And so we have here the story of the Savior, and then we have the story of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the world, as the Savior's plans in the book of Acts unfold in that first century church. And so if you join me, we'll pray. We'll pick up here in verse 1 and our introduction to Luke's gospel. Father, thank you for the meticulous nature of the writing of this particular author, this amazing man, Dr. Luke. We pray that you'd bless us as we study and as we uh, embark now on a journey uh, through this gospel. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts of the blessed message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. Uh, Fill us with your spirit. Help us to receive from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand is set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. And so Luke begins by referring to the the number of accounts that were circulating during those those first uh, hundred years or so. uh, During the time that Jesus was both alive and then directly after he had been crucified and ascended to heaven. And there were a number of those that wrote about what happened during that time. And, of course, we have four of them. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, So principally the gospel authors, what we call the synoptic gospels. uh, Together, if you look at them, they often repeat things one with another because there was a singular story. That story was viewed from four different eyewitness accounts. And so Luke is telling us what he's doing just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. And it seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding from all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. Most excellent Theophilus. And so he writes to a very specific person, a Gentile ruler, a Roman This man, Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. And so 
In this introductory narrative, the gospel author Luke is reminding us his whole goal is to be extremely accurate. He, he wants to bring this message forth so that people everywhere, in every circumstance, situation of life, you, you might look at it, everyone everywhere in every age, could understand the things that happened while Jesus was here on this earth and directly after as the gospel was spread throughout the entirety of the world. And so as I said, the heart of the message found there in chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man, referring to that messianic title given by Daniel, which we're studying or about to come to chapter 7 in a couple of weeks. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. People sometimes often debate why Jesus came in the first place. Very often they'll say, think, well, he was, he was God, he had to come. No, he came because he loved us, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Because without him, we truly are still lost. And it is only in him that we can be found. It is through a relationship personally with Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. And so that is the centrality of the message here in Luke's gospel from a Gentile perspective. Matthew writes from a Jewish perspective. Peter writes from a little bit of a Jewish perspective. John certainly writes from a Jewish perspective. But the Gentile perspective is found here in Luke's gospel. And a very learned man, Dr. Luke is. He's actually a trained physician. He's going to be called that by the Apostle Paul in chapter 4. And so we know that Luke was a brilliant man and he cared about details. Sometimes we, we tend to think that modern medicine uh, has, has brought forth a, a new type of individual called a doctor, but doctors existed during biblical times. They did not have all of the training that doctors would have today, but they were the best and the brightest amongst the population. If you wanted to know someone who is learned, it was very often a doctor that you would seek out. And in fact, the Greeks prided themselves on the study of medicine. And if you're a doctor today, uh, the Ascalepus, that little symbol that has the serpent wrapped around uh, a pole, uh, the symbol for medicine today in our modern world is actually a Greek symbol. It comes from that day and time when Dr. Luke existed and practiced medicine. And so as we read this book, it's helpful for us to understand that particular perspective. He set about, it says here, to write an orderly narrative. He didn't want to leave out any of the details. And so you can expect in Luke's gospel for there to be some details that are not found in some of the other gospel writers' accounts. And because he was trained as a physician, you can look at the details. You, you can see Luke saw some things that other people didn't see and recorded things that other people didn't record. And, and in fact, as it says here in verse 4, uh, which we'll get to, he, he was actually instructing Theophilus. And the word that's used there, instructing, is actually a Greek word, kakumen, uh, from which we get catechism or to be instructed in an orderly way. So from Luke's gospel, we find an orderly way for us to understand the things that happened in the life of Christ. As I shared with those that were out on Thursday night, God expects us to reason. 
He expects us to think. He gave us minds with which to do that that are monumentally intricate and complex, capable of fantastic abilities. And so God wants you to be able to use your mind. And I think for those of us that have a tendency to think, uh, the Gospel of Luke is important to us because it fleshes out some things uh, that are potentially not as clear in the other Gospels. And so we get some of that accuracy which which you would think uh, a doctor might write. Now, I know some of you have probably seen a doctor's handwriting and thought to yourself, I'm glad that that's not who wrote. Uh, But remember, during that time, most everyone had some help in physically writing things. And it's highly likely uh, that Dr. Luke employed a scribe at times to write down his notes as well. And and so as we look at this, um, we're going to find Luke is going to refer to some things that he will then set in place and clarify in the book of Acts. And so as you're reading through Luke's gospel, as we journey through this book, it's beneficial for you to also read through the book of Acts simultaneously because it is there we find uh, this amazing man's story. On Paul's second missionary journey, uh, he was brought to this place called Troas and it is there uh, that the, he, he captured this vision Uh, that somehow he was going to be hindered from doing what he thought he was going to do, and he would ultimately meet a man in Macedonia. Uh, Interestingly enough, the man that he meets, Paul meets, is none other than Dr. Luke, and he meets Dr. Luke in Macedonia. So that vision there from Luke 16 is really of Dr. Luke and how they would then join together. And as you read the book of Acts, especially in the middle portions from chapter 16 onward, you're going to find Dr. Luke often using uh, the second or third person pronouns. And he will go on to say, we, he's traveling with the apostle Paul. He's joined in in the apostle Paul's ministry. So he is one of those who had very close contact with the Apostle Paul. So you can expect to see in Luke's gospel some of the Pauline teachings on grace, some of the Pauline teachings uh, on how we should live our lives in in a way that honors the Lord. And so the familiarity that we see in in Dr. Luke's account uh, is also part of what we'll see as we read the book of Acts, and then also what you'll see as the Apostle Paul writes. And so these three pieces, if you will, Paul's letters to the church, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts provide for us the most solid background that we have about the theology that we would all hold to as Bible-believing Christians. It's also helpful for us to understand that the language of the day uh, that was considered to be the intelligent language was not Roman, it was actually Greek. It was the Greeks who were the great thinkers. Romans uh, were were focused more on government and, and the ruling of the land, but the Greeks were still the thinkers. And so we have here a Greek man that's going to write down this incredible account And he's going to give us, in these first 17 verses, an actual introduction himself. Uh, And first, we see a very clear declaration about what he's going to do. There was an enormous amount of material that was available. So there in verses 1 and 2, which we've already read, um, during that time that he's writing, you would have also had 
uh, some of the Gnostic gospels floating around, things that were not actually uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of James, the Gnostic Gospels themselves. And so there's a whole bunch of information that Luke would have been able to sift through and say, well, I think that is from the Spirit. But I want you to notice something because he repeats it a couple of times throughout his, his book. And he reminds us that these things were from the beginning and that they were from above, that they had come to him from the Lord. The word in the beginning there is the same as you find in Genesis 1-1, that these truths were given to him by God. They're not concocted. They weren't simply repeated stories that the Lord himself had spoken uh, into, into Luke's life. And so he's really going to just share this information. He's going to write it down in a way that when you look at it, you're like, wow, it's like, it's like you sat down and somebody's sharing a firsthand account, which is what this is. And so there are truths that are contained in all of the Gospels. And when you look at them, it it becomes very clear that each of them puts forth the basic doctrines uh, of faith. That Jesus came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a supernatural and sinless life. Um, He he taught truths that were undiluted. Uh, He he triumphed over demons. He had power over the devil. Uh, He died an atoning death on the cross. All of these things are contained in Luke's gospel. And so there's no difference in doctrine in that sense. Um, But Luke focuses in on the little tiny details. He gives us some additional information that as we look at it, it's like, oh, okay, now I get where that came from. You'll notice Luke has this incredible determination and dedication to those details. In verse 3, you see this. And it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Now that phrase, very first, is actually a singular word in the Greek. It is antonen. And that word simply means that it came from above. We look at it and would translate it, well, it's the first thing. Well, the first thing is the one who is first, the one that's above all things. It's from the Lord. And so he's actually referring to the fact this is supernatural. It isn't just things that he studied. It isn't just things that he knew. He saw the miracles. He understood the wisdom of the Lord. He understood the power of God. He understood the love of God. And so he says some things that the other gospel authors pick up on. And here's one of the ways that you can know that. If you take and compare Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, you're going to find that in Mark's gospel, about 320 of the verses that are contained in Mark's, uh, or in Luke's gospel, about of the 661 that are in Mark's gospel, Luke repeats half of them. He says, these things are true. I've researched them for myself. I I know for a fact this is what happened. And so it helps us understand that when you have two eyewitness accounts and they both agree on a bunch of details, um, that's very strong evidence for the case that they're attempting to make. And the case they're making is that Jesus Christ is God's son. That he came to seek and save that which is lost. And so the agreement that, that exists there is one of the reasons that Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the founder of the Harvard School of Laws, he looked at this account of eyewitnesses and he began to put these stories together and realized that each of these men died for that testimony. He said, it is the fact that they each believed these things 
while not living together, but comparing notes in essence going, I I know this is actually true, that strong testimony of the eyewitness is exactly what caused him to come to believe himself personally that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. He, He was the savior of the world. And so Luke has that type of firsthand information. In verses three through four, we see uh, the dedication of this gospel. And I write to you in an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things with which you're instructed. And so Luke dedicates his gospel to this man. Uh, the word Theophilus can be actually a title. It was used in, in the Roman world uh, for a high-ranking official. And in fact, that name is also attached to some of the local governors like Festus and Felix that, the, that Luke will mention when he gets into the latter chapters of the book of Acts. And so um, as we see the apostle Paul with these two men, with Festus and, and and also with Felix there in Caesarea Maritima on the coast of modern day Israel. And we travel there on our Israel trips. We actually go to the very place that the Apostle Paul was tried for those two years. The very theater that Paul stood in as he would give an account uh, of what had happened in Jerusalem. It was there that Dr. Luke was also with him most likely as a personal physician. That he was caring because if you were in prison during that day and time, if you didn't have someone on the outside taking care of you, you didn't live long in prison. And so the Apostle Paul uh, had as his companion Dr. Luke. And it was during that time it's believed that Luke both authored the book of Acts as well as this gospel. He had a lot of time to think. Uh, Basically, he was in the city. This is a Roman port city. It was a very uh, prosperous city at the time. Uh, And so it would be there that he dedicates uh, this work to Theophilus, uh, no doubt a Gentile convert uh, to the Lord. And so uh, Paul likely was Luke's mentor. Uh, It it is clear that they traveled together. And so as they shared uh, theology back and forth, uh, they were able to, to... compare facts, compare notes, compare truth. And so there is great consistency between the writings of Paul and the writings of of the gospel author Luke, also the author of the book of Acts. Begins with the story, and the story begins this way, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, and he's speaking of Herod the Great, uh, there were five Herods, Herod Antipas, Herod uh, who was also surnamed Philip, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, also Herod the Second, and then um, Archelaus. So these were actually individuals, all of whom who were named Herod. And so it's important for us to recognize that when you read the Bible, you need to know which Herod is in power at that time. And so this was Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, was responsible for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. He was an Idumean, which means he was half Jewish and half Edomite. He came from modern-day Jordan. Uh, He was installed as, in essence, a puppet king for the Roman government. And so he wasn't really well-liked by anyone. Uh, He wasn't entirely Jewish, but he wasn't against the Jewish people uh, as much as the Romans would have been. Uh, And so in the days of Herod... 
Uh, this king that we're going to come to meet in a, a very prominent way in the Christmas story. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, and he uses the word king as a ruler. This was the king uh, that was installed really by the Romans, but, but honored as king uh, by the Jewish people. They had no choice. That a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and some people look at that and well, what, what does that mean? Well, during the temple period, specifically the first temple period, before the children of Israel had gone into captivity into Babylon, uh, the Torah was divided up into 24 divisions. And half of the year, uh, the, those divisions were all taught by exactly one priest. And so everybody got, in essence, a 24th of the Torah. And the first person to ever teach the eighth portion, which is this particular portion, uh, was the high priest Abijah. And so it was assigned to him forever that that portion of the Torah, as it was being taught in the temple, uh, was the division of Abijah. And so here comes Zacharias. He had a unique position. Not only was he himself related to the high priest, he was married to a woman who was of the lineage of Aaron, the very first high priest. And so we have an extremely important man in Judaism who's now a friend and, and someone who is known by a Gentile physician. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinance of the Lord, and they were blameless. And so there's an interesting contrast here. As you look at this incredible contrast, you have this, this vicious prince that's been appointed by Rome, and you have an incredibly uh, virtuous priest. On one hand, you have a man who has extraordinary talent. Uh, again, as you travel with us to Israel, we'll, we'll go to Herod's mountaintop fortress known as Masada. And you see this incredible building, Caesarea Maritima, built by Herod. He had the world's first oceanfront pool. Uh, he actually had a palace with a saltwater pool in the front of it. Uh, he was responsible for all kinds of incredible building projects, including the actual temple that most people are familiar with, this, this unbelievable structure that was gilded on the front side on the eastern gates with gold so that when the sun come up and would come up in the morning, uh, the reason the gates were called the golden gates is because the golden gates were directly behind them and the sun shone on those gates. So you had Herod, this incredibly gifted uh, one might say, you know, he's, he was kind of the, uh, the, the construction king of the time, but he was also wicked. And then you have this guy that's ready to retire from the priesthood named Zacharias. He's kind of on his, on, he's, he's on the last legs of life's journey. He no doubt, as all the priests did, maintained a home likely in Jericho. And he would spend a portion of his time in Jerusalem. When he was not there, he was down in Jericho at the springs, kind of hanging out. One hated God. One loved God. One man has absolutely murderous sons, the remainder of the Herods. So you have Herod the Great and then all of his progeny, every last one of them, evil to the core. who actually are 
He murdered some of his own sons. His, his, his own favorite wife, an absolutely wicked woman. And then you have this incredible man who loves the Lord, doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's not a people pleaser. One was foreign born and a usurper of the law of God. The other was a native born citizen, a, a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there's this incredible contrast. And as he begins his course, it's interesting because during the history of the children of Israel, as, as the children of Israel were taken into captivity, and then as they came back from that captivity, um, they did not bring back all the temple imp- implements. The rabbinical traditions clearly state uh, that when the children of Israel came back, they were minus the Ark of the Covenant, they were minus the, the implements that were needed, necessary in the temple, and so those needed to be remade. And it's now kind of in this, in this makeshift sense in this beautiful building uh, that's made by Herod. So on the outside, it's gorgeous. On the inside, they don't have all of the things that existed in the first temple. But it is there that this godly priest is, is just going to go in and he, he will then absolutely uh, begin to, to minister uh, in that place Notice the pronouncement that's quite problematic, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both very well advanced in years. This is an old this is an Abraham and Sarah couple. This is they they are pretty sure that this is how life is gonna end. And one thing saddens this godly couple. They were they were both well advanced in years. Uh, it, it, if you were to look at it in a strictly Jewish sense, you, you never said that about anyone until they were at least 65. And so it's believed that Zacharias was at least 65 when this uh, is, is, a, is announced. It was further said when you reached age 70 that you were uh, gray-haired, and at 80 you were well-stricken in years. And so now it says they were both well-stricken in years, so it's quite probable that they were both in their 80s so this is a very aged high priest and a very aged woman that he's married to that have no children you can almost imagine them sitting around thinking together they're as they're coming into jerusalem to fulfill their duties they might be saying well maybe we're going to have an isaac maybe we're going to have a samson maybe there's going to be a samuel for us but here's this, this couple that just simply wants to keep doing what the Lord has for them. Notice there is a prayer-filled place, verse 8, and it says, And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, and so he's fulfilling his duty, this uh, two-week-long period that he would go in and be responsible Uh, for reading from the Torah. He would be responsible for offering up on the altar of incense. He would be be responsible uh, for assigning another priest to come with him. They would go into the courtyard and there in the brazen altar where the sacrifices were offered and the the barbecue was happening as, as they would go and gather some coals from there and they would go inside. They would put those coals in the incense altar. So you're taking the sacrificed animal, the one that was offered up for the sins and you put it in the altar of incense and then incense was put on it, which were to be representative of the prayers of the people, the prayers of the saints. That, that, was, that was this godly man. 
And he would go in and he would spend his time offering up prayer. And he himself knew what was beyond the veil, though he himself did not go beyond the veil. He understood that that holy of holies that was just beyond that curtain uh, was the place that God was supposed to be enthroned and dwelled. And he knew that there was no Ark of the Covenant back there and saddened. So here's this, this incredible man. And Luke opens up this story by reminding us of, of these little tiny details outside the, the Temple Mount is a fairly small area. If you look at it today, the entirety of the compound that you call the Temple Mount, which would have been much smaller then, is a scant 24 acres. It's tiny. But outside, there, there were more than likely thousands of people. And they were praying and, and offering up sacrifices. They were purchasing goods to be offered as sacrifices over in the the, the Solomon's porch. And so there was a time that you could almost see, it's like there's this dichotomy of thinking that's going on. You have Zacharias going in and offering up his prayers before the Lord, and outside you kind of have all this busyness going on. And it is in that place that we find the prophetic words of an angel that, that are spoken. But the angel said to him, after his trouble, he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so these are little tiny details that are important because it would have been the priest that was standing directly before the altar of incense. The angel couldn't be there. And so he's giving a picture. Where is he standing? He's standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's standing between the altar of incense and the table of showbread. And so here's this angel appears to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense and when Zacharias saw him verse 12 he was troubled and fear fell upon him he, he now is concerned it's like what's this all about but the angel said to him verse 13 do not be afraid Zacharias for your prayer is heard and your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name John and of course, this is none other than John the Baptist. This is not the gospel author, John, uh, but John who will also be known as the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. The first words out of the angel's mouth because this is so stunning to Zacharias is fear not. And I love these little things, these tiny little things that you know came to Dr. Luke because he more than likely talked to Zacharias. He more than likely talked to Elizabeth. He understood these things because they were communicated to him. And the angel said, look, you're, you're going to have a son, and his son is, your son's name is going to be named John. Shehokanen, which means God is, God is gracious. He says, God's grace is going to come. And like no other gospel author do we see in, in the gospel of Luke, we see the grace of God poured out. It begins with the Christmas story. And from that perspective, what the children of Israel had known was this. For 400 years, God had been silent. Since the prophet Malachi... God had really not spoken anything into their, into their world that was new, if you will. And the first thing that is spoken into their world 
is you're going to have a son and his name's going to be God is gracious. So it goes from this prophetic word to the children of Israel to tell them about what's going to happen through the grace of God. In verse 15, he goes on to say, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so the, the character of being foretold, the, the career is foretold in the following verses, verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Remember what he does, and we'll see it immediately. Prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus comes to be baptized. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he will also go before him in the spirit, the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. He actually quotes from the last word that they received from the prophet Malachi. Luke says, look, this is what was said by Malachi the prophet. John the Baptist is going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's going to be the one that is going to fulfill that prophetic word that was given by Malachi. He's going to speak forth that truth that God is gracious, that God loves us, that's the reason Jesus came into the world. And just as Malachi said that the spirit, the power of Elijah was to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to, to, to make a path, to prepare the way of the Lord. The very same thing, by the way, that the prophet Isaiah says as he prophesies of John the Baptist as well. He says, this man is going to prepare the way of the Lord. And so John will be baptizing. He'll be wearing this crazy camel hair coat and eating locusts and wild honey, uh, just saying, look, you guys need to know about the grace of God. And so it's going to be an incredible journey. We're going to begin it, obviously, with the coming of the Savior. We're going to see the Savior's saga. And so the first... Oh, six or seven chapters kind of give us this incredible picture uh, of who Jesus is and why he came and what he did. And so prepare yourselves. It's going to be a great journey. It ties right in with Christmas. Uh, we're coming in at just the right time, which I, by the way, did not plan. It just happened to work out that way. The Lord's always good, isn't he? Next week, the Savior Saga, part one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. that you have been faithful to remind us from the very beginning of these truths. Lord, as you spoke prophetically through the prophets of old and as the story, Lord, of your birth, your death, your burial, your resurrection uh, comes to life in Luke's gospel. We see the gospel of grace unfold. Lord, we thank you for how you have preserved your word, how it speaks to us today, that it is still truth, it has always been truth, that these men, Luke, Paul, Mark, John, Matthew, all, all paid with their very lives to maintain the story. 
And so, God, we know that it came from some other place other than this earth. And we thank you for heavenly truth that leads us to the Savior. We thank you for the grace that you poured out in our lives and pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we study this incredible book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.